0: everybody, you faithful souls, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I thought everybody was sacrificing, but I guess the game doesn't start till 4:30. So uh, there we are. Anywhere we are in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 part 5. It's just a wrap up, but I have to summarize my heart on this, uh, what we've been talking about. And then we're going to cover one verse of chapter eight, God's direction to, to the Church of Smyrna, but we'll cover all that when we get there. We'll begin with a prayer, we'll sing the word of God, set the music, sit in silence, and go from there. Lord, we uh, thank you and praise you and seek you, need you in our lives. We try to prepare our minds and hearts to uh, be with you after this life. There's nothing here after that, and so we, uh, we gather together to uh, try to focus on this, this perspective and um, help us to do that, Lord. Teach us your truths. Forget the things, um, help us to forget the things I say, which are incorrect, and uh, help everybody who's here and involved, whether they're at home watching or, or here live, that they'll share their insights and voice. We have different views, and often great things come from that. Help us to relax, uh, trust in you, and uh, look to you now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Oh. But I say to you, love your. Too good to love go.
0: Okay. Um, Before we get into it, uh, let me just say really quickly, with campus, with our ministry, uh, our first purpose is to reach in uh, to the world and try to help people uh, understand Jesus. And then maybe a second thing would be reach into uh, milk-drinking believers, people who have become believers, and make help them become meat eaters and um, and then finally the goal and this is kind of what we I teach to in the afternoons is to push all Christian meat eaters outside of the comforts of religion and to this is going to sound harsh to the gates outside the city gates to a lonely painful daily death at Calvary Now that's brutal, but that's biblical. It's the picture. Um, And outside the city gates is a theme that uh, I'm gonna talk about before we get into the next verse in Revelation to wrap up the five parts we've just done. And I'll explain that as we go. But before we do that, uh, a year or so ago, Cassidy, uh, my daughter, had it on her heart to make a spot that we show on Heart of the Matter. And this spot summarizes what I hope to try to do with all of us, myself included, um, in MEAT. And so let's just take three two minutes and take a look at this. You at home and then here.
2: Jesus was born and his birth was celebrated. And he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And then his time had come. Revival, miracles, praise from the masses. But soon those same masses turned and walked no more with him. And Jesus, in truth, suffered alone. He was mocked, denied, forsaken. He was killed on a cross like a criminal outside the city gates where the masses thrived. as sold out followers of him, how could we in our lives expect anything different?
1: We've
0: done 19 promises that Jesus has made to those in the seven churches in Revelation who have overcome, who have ears to hear, who follow his word to the end, and who confess him before men. Those are kind of the wrapped up qualifiers. Jesus says, I will give you this if you are about that. And it's only gonna take up a part of our time, the first part today, and then we'll get into Revelation chapter two, verse eight, which is Jesus beginning to talk to the church at Smyrna. But to wrap up the 19 promises, we ended up last week with Jesus, that quote, that very quote that Cassidy ended here, and I didn't even think she used that, uh, where Jesus says in Matthew, straight is the gate, and straight as S-T-R-A-I-T, not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. That straight means something different. It doesn't mean like this. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few be there that find it. We wrapped it up last week saying that. There is a tendency in the faith, I believe, and this is a very important message um, to share because I think it really summarizes everything we've been talking about. There's a tendency in the faith today to suggest that broad is the way to life and narrow is the way to destruction. And when the scripture uses destruction, I believe it is talking about afterlife destruction to us. I don't believe it's talking about an end time destruction, I believe it's afterlife loss that people will experience in the presence of God who is an all-consuming fire. So we are teaching more and more that broad is the way to life. And narrow is the way to afterlife destruction. But Jesus said the opposite. He said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few be there that find it to life. So while I believe most will experience afterlife loss, and this is because of the way judgment is going to work, I can't help but agree with Jesus' own words that very, very few are finding the way, straight and narrow way to eternal life by comparison. So it's kind of a toss up in terms of the things we're teaching because I do believe in total reconciliation. I don't believe God loses to anybody, Satan or man's will. I think all will be brought to him. But I do believe many will suffer afterlife destruction of something because they have focused on something that they probably shouldn't have, believers and non. So after compiling and crushing scripture down, it seems that the net result, that the highest reward or achievement that we can get in this life is for discovering the straight and narrow way. Because few be there that find it. And to its fullest, eternal life to its fullest, if you wanna put it that way. So in other words, eternal life without any loss, eternal life without any hindrance to our person. All that is laid on the altar, that we lay on the altar after this life is proven to be good. It is not consumed as wood, hay, and stubble. It remains as gold and precious stones and it burns and, and it's all good. So that's the that's the straight, narrow way and few be there that find it. Never being touched by the all-consuming fire, but instead illuminated by it. So. We know from scripture that all, even believers, will reap what we have sown. And it's, it's a paradox because we also know we've been forgiven of sin. So we aren't talking about salvation and forgiveness of sin here. We're not talking about reaping what we have sown in terms of our evil. If you're a believer, that has been forgiven. We're talking about reaping what we have sown from the heart in terms of rewards we will reap what we have sown in the fields of faith. We will not reap what we have sown in the fields of selfishness. So appealing to his grace and forgiveness is the means where we erase what we have sown in sin. That comes by faith. That's Christ Jesus doing it for us. So it's, it's not the punishment that's coming. The afterlife loss and destruction is the loss of things that are, are burned up because they were never done with the right heart before God, okay? So we know from scripture that in his father's house are many mansions. We know from scripture that there are different resurrections. Paul talks about having a better resurrection and that some will receive resurrections of damnation. Others will receive resurrections to life. So this is where the, the, the reaping what we have sown starts to play out. So last week we wrapped up discussing what Jesus promised to those who have overcome, have ears to hear, follow him to the end, and who profess him before men. And there were 19 of these promises that we spent five weeks discussing. And they're pretty radical. All the way to the last one being, you will sit on my throne with me because you have overcome. That is something that is gained and it probably is something that is lost or never given. Um, And he says, you'll sit on, on this throne with me because you've overcome as I overcame and sit in my Father's throne. Second Corinthians five, is a really great chapter. It's often overlooked because it's a second book. Often second books don't, aren't read as much. People read 1 Corinthians much more than second. It's just our nature. But Paul writes beginning at verse one, listen to what he says. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we know if this body died, dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the resurrection that we're talking about. This building, this mansion that we have in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon, listen, with our house, which is from heaven. So we're anticipating that we will die and we will exit this body and we will inherit a resurrected body which Paul calls our house from heaven and it will be be one of the many mansions constructed in a way that is going to abide in the presence of God. He says, if so being clothed, we be not found naked for we are in this tabernacle, we do groan. So here in this life we groan, oh man, body's getting old. Being burdened, not for what we be unclothed but clothed that mortality might be swallowed up into Uh, Now, jumping down nine verses, Paul says, wherefore, listen, this is meat, this is why we do it. We labor that whether present or absent, Paul says we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest to your consciousness. So what he's saying there is, listen, there is going to be a judgment after this life for everybody. We believers are Christ. We will be rewarded based off that. We will be given rewards uh, based off that and will suffer destructions for things that should never have been in our life. These words are not the words of an outreach ministry. They're not milk words. They're not something you teach in these, to people who don't understand yet, as Christ Jesus is our way. He is, this morning we talked about, believe on him and you're saved. That's correct. You are saved. But the rewards, you might be saved, but the rewards come by virtue of Paul saying, wherefore we labor, that we may, our lives will be accepted to him. We might be saved, but are our lives acceptable to him? So they're not words for a babe in Christ to hear. They are meaty phrases for those who have come to understand the implications of having received the gift of salvation, been given to you, the choice to die to self in this world and live to him or not. That's what it's all about. You receive Christ by faith, now you're daily faced with a choice. Do I die to self? Do I live to self? Do I live to him? And that is what the rewards are based upon. Uh, These are about Christian fruits. This is where the parable of the sower comes into play. And uh, about, Paul talks about I pray that his grace was not bestowed in vain. You know what he means by that? That he didn't bestow grace upon Sean McCraney and forgive my sin in vain so that I bear no fruit of love and goodness and kindness to others. He bestowed his grace upon me and he doesn't want it to be in vain where I just stop being a a Christian. I've received my salvation. So no, he wants to bestow his grace upon us so that we bear fruit. And in the midst of all the good that is in this world, and there's a lot of good in this world, God has created it for us, I wanna state a fact here. In this life, there is always going to be suffering. In fact, it really culminates into that. I would love to give a positive mental Uh, attitude and, and positive speech to you about how great everything is and overcome through your own imagination. But bottom line, it's about suffering. That's why I wanted to show that spot. That was a profound spot. Because what it says is, you know, Jesus himself, he was born, the star came out, the sky, the wise men, a life, he enters his ministry, he has the applause. And then they turned and the suffering begins. So death and disease and discomfort and disasters are going to reign. No matter how advanced we think we are, no matter how many cement bunkers we build, no matter how many vitamins we take, babes are going to drown. It's a sad, difficult fact about this life. We're not gonna stop it. Mental illness is going to invade healthy minds. Cancer will invade healthy bodies. Suffering loneliness, inequality, alienation, ugliness, deformity. And that doesn't even touch suffering of the soul when people are mean to each other or people are outcast from another group and people are treated badly or there's disloyalty and the lies and selfishness. If we can create a utopia, we've always tried to create utopias, uh, they will fail and they will end up enduring, uh, uh, contributing to the suffering that goes on in this fallen world. So certainly we fight against it. We beat back some things, we'll defeat cancer, we'll get our teeth fixed and the cavities will be replaced by fillings and we'll continue, but suffering in the end, the rain is gonna fall on the best laid picnic and cars are gonna break down and people will lie and people will die and there's no escaping the pain and suffering, there's just not gonna be. So amidst all this, God has given human beings choice. He's given us choice. In fact, by and through the endless suffering that's presented before us, sometimes we get motivated into better choices. If we realize the suffering that's around the corner if we don't choose right, the the potentiality for suffering moves us to make a better choice. Um, Some choose to run from suffering as fast as they can and through any means available. I don't wanna suffer. And so therefore, I'm going to survive by seeking pleasure. And others try to wisely keep suffering to a minimum, but every now and again there are are those who understand suffering as a Christian. And that is what the message that we are getting to in almost every meet gathering. And it's an uncomfortable one because people they don't wanna hear about having to suffer. They wanna hear about having to overcome and have, and have comfort. So we are faced to some extent with these choices and choices on how to make life around us less insufferable, on how to live, on how to spend our time allotted with pain or with pleasure or the two. And I, I wanted you to put in your mind that the world is a giant carnival. Just think of a giant carnival tent. That is life on earth. It's got the big peaks, you got the big tent, the poles, and inside that is the world. And inside you have every choice possible of how to go and live in this world. And in the end, it really boils down to two solutions. You can focus on this life, or you can focus on the life to come. I'm gonna break it down that way for our discussion today. After the 19 promises Jesus has given, we can choose to focus a little bit on this life and a lot on that life to come, a lot on that life to come. We can, we, you can mix it up any way you want, but the choice is there. And as a help means to define the straight gate and narrow way, I'm gonna say the focus on this life and the focus on the hereafter, and that's what I've put on the board. And I'm going to suggest that we'll get through this. That the focus on this life, you know, we're going to say this is on the left. Why do I put it on the left hand, my left hand? Because it'll all be left. And I put this on the right because by doing it, you are right. So there's the first thing, this is on the left because everything will be left that you seek. Now it's not that God doesn't want us to have a life that's abundant in the material, but don't make it the priority is the reason I'm talking about this. This is a focus over here, this life, primarily on self and that includes families, what we want our own, and it includes, it includes the material because that's what we deal with mostly. And it's the broad way. This is the, the way to destruction. So we can add destruction. The focus in this life on things like this, comfort and acceptance and popularity and pride and money and recognition and and, and gains and power and ambition. This is the focus of those who live in this world. Most scripture and Jesus' teachings are about this side. And as much as we go over it, and as much as it seems like, okay, but that's what his, his whole thing is about. Don't lay up your treasures on earth where moth and dust rust destroy. Lay your treasures in heaven. And he goes on and on and on about these principles. Okay, so let's talk about this life focus first. And I would suggest that generally speaking, we could say, that most everything on the focus on this life is about comfort, which is about escaping pain, and escaping disease, and escaping all of that. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with comfort. Jesus drank wine, he made wine, his first miracle. He ate, they called him a glutton. He partied with people, I don't mean party in the world sense, I mean he went and socialized, and he had fun uh, with people, he enjoyed people. So I'm not talking about asceticism, but, it's the basis, you know, those needs for comfort are the basis of Maslow, uh, Maslow? Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And we're all happy that we have antibiotics and washers and dryers and the like. And not everybody is created to be a monk or a pastor or a preacher. Not everybody is made that way. The way God made you is the way you should be. But there is a great danger in focusing on this life as the priority, grave danger, in allowing that whatever brings us earthly comforts to prevail over the other world, okay? And this fact brings us to the reality we, that we all have to make a choice, daily, hourly, every minute. Do we choose to make our focus on the here and now or on the there and thereafter? Is it on the here and now, or is it on the there and thereafter? And all of our choices can be for the there and thereafter while functioning in the here and now. We don't have to become absent-minded, blinded to this life and just walk about like zombies, but you can live your life here as if it's for the there and thereafter. So amidst all this world is about, we have an invitation by Christ. And Christ has said in the last seven to the seven churches, 19 promises that he will give to those who really accept his invitation. Now we're getting heavy meaty. If you do this, I will give you that. If you do this, if you overcome, if you have an ear to hear, I will give you that. It's in a constant exchange of the promises he'll give. And the invite from him is first, as we said, to believe on him, to believe. And in this, in this invitation, we begin to understand life in the carnival, and we begin to understand, we start to get kind of an idea of what the straight gate, narrow way is, all right? Stay with me. So God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to save us. Simply believe on him, you'll be saved from future afterlife discomfort. There must be something inherently good in just being a created by God, just being a person who God gave life to and lives your life and dies. There must be something inherently good to that, that he gave that to trillions of people over the course of history. So that in and of itself, that is the basic plan. And, but Jesus was all about, let's talk about the afterlife plan. Let's forget about the basic reality of life and let's talk about the afterlife plan for people who come and enter into the carnival, right? And we have to admit that afterlife loss is inevitable for all who seek to focus on this life. Jesus made that perfectly clear. It's inevitable. He tells parables of the rich man. All he did, the rich man in his parable, was live sumptuously every day and he compared him to Lazarus the beggar who had sores all over him and just begged for a crumb of bread from the rich man's thing. That's all he said about him, nothing else. And then when they both die, the, the, the man who lived sumptuously was in torments because he was suffering afterlife loss. While Lazarus the beggar was in Abraham's bosom, uh, uh, paradise, enjoying relaxation and comfort. And so to, to enjoy the comforts here for a season is not to have them there. To, to, to die to self here and suffer here is to have comfort there. That's the, that's the syllogism that he constantly is giving through almost everything he teaches. So most of us have built our houses upon the sand instead of the rock, and we will find our temporal focus, wherever they may be, carry very, very little weight in the afterlife. Now we could say that's just the fictions of people to create and talk about, but Jesus is the one who said it all, and I trust those things. So I sit here and I think, well, how do we, I'm a betting man, what's the best place to put my chips? The best place to me to put your chips is on a life here that reflects a focus on the afterlife. That is the best way to bet your chips because that's what scripture is all about. So, God, so loving the world, he sent his only begotten the Son to save us, to so show us a better way, a way that leads to less of a focus on self and comfort seeking and the here and now carnival and more of a focus on others, on God, on loving him first, loving them second. One way carries weight in the hereafter, another way carries weight in the present. And throughout the uh, message to the seven churches, Jesus says, To those who overcome, to those who overcome, to those who overcome, seven times, actually eight times, nine times in the book of Revelation, to those who overcome. I will give, I will grant, I will bestow. All right. Amidst all of the carnival, there are those who choose under the, under the carnival tent to accept Christ as their savior. They are under the tent and they say, you know, in this fallen world, I want to receive Jesus. They believe on him, they look at him, and they become children of God by faith. They are saved from afterlife discomfort. They are saved from themselves. They are saved to God. Their sins have been forgiven. And I would suggest, to use our, our illustration of the carnival, I would suggest that the people who have received Jesus in this life and, and are in the carnival, they go and they live in a place called Godland. It's on the hills right behind the, the carnival. And in Godland, man, there's all kinds of... of of this is a section for people who don't wanna smoke pot usually, don't wanna drink alcohol to excess typically, they don't wanna be drunkards, they wanna be industrious, they wanna stay away from porn, uh, they don't wanna ambitiously seek after the things of this world, they watch what the entertainment they're in, they, uh, they go to church faithfully, they stay away from most of the allurements of the carnival. They go to Godland, the hills right behind where the carnival's going on. And Godland's a planned community of sorts for people who want a better way to live. And people who find Jesus in this life, they often go. That's the first destination they go. And Godland has Buddhist parks, and Godland has Christian beaches, and Godland has Islamic deserts. Godland is a place where people want something that is focused on a hereafter. It's not just Christian. We call it Godland because God is involved in all of their thinking and what they do. They choose to step outside of under the tent and they say, that's the world carnival. I'm gonna go to Godland. That's where I'm going to live my existence. And within the Christian community of Godland, organizations provide godly activities for people to participate in. They have weekly socials and dances and youth groups and men's and women's groups and choirs and worship teams and outings and hikes and breakfasts with like-minded believers up in the hills of Godland, the Christian community of Godland. And the, is, is Muslims do the same and so do the Buddhists. They have things for their kids, all centered on God. What is often overlooked is the fact that most of the activities that go on in Godland are patterned after activities that go on in the carnival. You have to understand that. You're still, Godland and the carnival are all within the city gates. They are all inside the city gates. That's where you find acceptability. That's where you're gonna find your people, your culture. And we jump into that and we say, this is me being a Christian. I'm not part of the carnival, I'm part of Godland in the Christian section. So therefore I'm okay. But they don't see that they're still behind the city walls of the world. And what goes on in Godland are pretty much laid out for by the themes and programs of the carnival. So, in other words, they have rides, but they're Jesus rides. And they have clothing, but it's Jesus clothing. And they have concerts, but it's singing to Jesus instead of doing what the carnival people sing to. And it goes on and on and on and they are wholesome and they avoid the fleshly things that are in the world, but As we can see, Godland is still in the confines of the carnival and it operates off the carnival's appeals and the key to all of this, listen, the key is the groups that thrive in Godland do so because they provide comfort to people who are in it. They become the thing that provides the comfort People step from the comforts of the carnival, the beer and the wine and the whatever, and they say, I'm gonna accept Jesus, and they go to Godland and they find their comforts in those associations. And they have their reward. They stay within the city walls. So, in the name of God, people, Buddhists and Christians and Muslims and Jews and all those in between, they join, they commit, they participate. I mean, we're talking billions of people on earth right now are part of Godland up in those hills, they've eschewed the carnival and said, nope, I am gonna live for God. They bathe in the River Ganges every week with their community. They take communion. They do all the different things that people do in God according to their specific beliefs in God, but they never step outside those darn city gates of comfort. Religion of every kind and type provides all who seek acceptance community financial well-being sometimes networking friends occupational growth and opportunities fame positions of power a community structure laws rules they provide comfort certainty a surety so instead of having friends that work at the carnival rides the people in Godland have friends who work in the Jesus rides or the church rides. Instead of getting together and going to a questionable carnival movie, the people in Godland go to see a Christian movie or a Buddhist movie. Instead of a rock concert where the flesh is fed with carnality, the people of Godland go and their flesh is fed with Jesus. And just as life in the carnival has financial demands, so does life in Godland. There is a price to pay. And they call them tithes and offerings and all that stuff. And they build their buildings. And the nicer they are, the more like God they're supposed to be. And we buy into it. We have our comforts. And we're all still really thriving in the comforts of Godland. And those benefits are extended to all who belong in their group. And only those who agree to maintain the beliefs of that special group in Godland will prophet. You still with me? In the genuine, catch that word, in the genuine Christian world, the one defined by the book we read, the books of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, faith in Christ is usually the defining attribute of each group. But there comes a range of activities afterward, after the reception, to have comfort and to stay sequestered in the hills behind the carnival and to never step outside those city gates that were brought up in that first video you just saw. Don't go out the city gates. Why? Well, then you become subject to criminals and death and ostracization and difficulty and loss of family and community. Don't go outside the city gates. I mean, stay in the carnival if you have to. But whatever you do, don't go outside the city gates. Hang out in Godland and be with those freaks, the carnivals will say. Or the the people in Godland will say, go down to the carnival and just sow your soul and flesh, but don't, whatever you do, step outside the city gates because the people of the carnival and the people of Godland and everybody in that community is gonna hate your guts. Jesus said to those who overcome, I will give them. To those who overcome, I will give that. It is at this point that all believers must decide every day. Will I remain in my area of Godland and settle on what my respective institution has promised me and even demands of me in terms of allegiance? Or, listen, or will I do what Jesus did? Will I do what Jesus did? That's the question. Jesus says, I'll let you sit on my throne because I overcame and sit on my father's. You'll sit on my throne if you overcome. Remember, it was Jesus who said, straight as the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it. In terms of numbers, we cannot possibly believe, cannot possibly believe that the inhabitants of Godland are the few, the inhabitants of Godland are as many as there are in carnival land. That is not what God Jesus is talking about. Numerically, Godland inhabitants represent the many because they found their source of comfort. Therefore, we might admit to ourselves that the few includes individuals who have received Christ and then at some point in time. Did something other than sit back and live within the confines of Godland for their religious comfort. I would suggest in the life of Christ, we see this supported, not the opposite. So, what do they do? In order to answer this, let's look at the life of Jesus and his teachings in the New Testament, because his truest disciples do what he did and what he taught must be done. I don't wanna talk about anything but what he really did, not principles of his good moral character. We know that stuff. But what did he actually do that makes people his children that follow him, and that will sit on his throne? What do people actually have to do? So on the board I have comfort written the son of man had no place to rest his head. This is all talking spiritually really and we are talking about discomfort. We are talking about suffering and it's to ourself. Acceptance, we are talking about a man who was rejected, acquainted with sorrows. You wanna be a Christian, you wanna follow Christ, it starts coming down to this stuff as hard as it is for us to hear it because we don't believe it really. We can't fathom that to truly follow him we would be rejected. I gotta tell you something, you will. buy, and we'll talk about buy in a second. Popularity, he, he went out alone. He, w- he was abandoned even by his apostles. Pride, it was utter humility and humiliation. Total humiliation. This is the pride of this life. Money, he had no place to lay his head. This is Jesus. Recognition, justice here in this life. He didn't seek retribution. Gains, power, ambition, we could go on and on. So the focus on life in the hereafter through Christ as a Christian is the opposite of what the focus is in this life. So, Finally, and including what's on the board, let me wrap this up now with a scriptural audit before we move on to Church of Smyrna. That tells us directly about the few, about those who overcome, those who have had ears to hear, and those who followed him to the end and have confessed his name before men as a means to receive the 19 promises that Jesus has given in Revelation. The book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible. It is there probably for a good reason, not only um, chronologically because of what it talks about, but it's also, it is the meatiest book, and there's almost like a natural uh, presupposition that people will read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, and study it before they get to Revelation. We don't typically read backward, and so people don't start with Revelation rarely after coming to know Christ. It's a book that's there for those who have been spiritually matured and they start to see the themes in scripture played out in that book and that's why it takes so long to cover it. Understand, if we were to give specifics about what the New Testament commands, there are 1,059 commandments in the New Testament. I have them in my laptop. They make the law written in stone look like a minor, child's play. 3 hundred and sixteen Jewish commandments we're talking one thousand and fifty nine in the New Testament, not repeating themselves so if you're going to read the New Testament and think you're going to get to God by doing everything that is implored there, you're nuts you can't do it so it's got to come away it's got to come about another way. Uh, so we speak in terms of general principles when we're talking about walking out of the carnival walking out of Godland and walking out of the city confines to live the life on the right side of the board. Uh, Here are the things that are described in scripture in concept. You ready? And you've heard them all. First, being crucified with Christ. We sing it here. In this life, this means living as new creatures and not after your former self. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Paul wasn't crucified, but he says it. That's metonymically speaking. It's a symbol of what we do. Nevertheless, I live, he says. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 6.6, he says, knowing this, That our old man, our carnival man, that word is sarx in the Greek, it means our meaty fleshly man, is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth we should not serve sin for he that is dead is freed from sin. We're talking about a life of sanctification by the spirit. But Paul says, remember, I was crucified with him in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Don't be living to yourself in the carnival. Don't be living unto yourself in your church group upon Godland's hill. Don't live to yourselves. But unto them which died for them and rose again, wherefore henceforth we know no man after the flesh Uh, And he goes on, he says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, how often are we crucified with Christ? How often does that occur? Daily, Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. And he adds in Romans 8, 36, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You have all this imagery, right? Being crucified with Christ, being killed all the day long, all this imagery, you're getting it in your head? What is the net result of these daily crucifixions? Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, ready, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's Paul writing. So he says, Listen, when I have received Christ truly, carnival, Godland, everything within the city gates is crucified to me, and I'm crucified to it. Where was Jesus crucified? Within the city gates or without? You can't be crucified with Christ in the carnival, you can't be crucified with Christ on the hill behind the carnival in Godland. You have to leave the city gates. You have to be taken outside of the world where you are crucified unto the world and the world is crucified unto you. That means it does not want you and you don't want it. That's brutal. That's really taking up that cross and walking outside of all the acceptable norms of comfort and saying, I am truly going to follow Christ, you see? In other words, in and through the death of our old man on the metonymic cross, the world is killed in us and us to the world. Stay with me, again I ask, where was Jesus crucified? We are supposed to be crucified with him, so where was he crucified? Outside the city, ga- the city gates. In the Old Testament, God said the leprosy you discover in buildings, tear it down and take it outside the city gates. Uh, The people you're going to lay your hands on and stone to death, take it and do it outside the city gates. The stuff that you're going to cut out from animals that isn't going to be used, your feces, your trash, take it outside the city gates. And so what you do is you have everybody within the city gates knowing what is outside of it and saying, I don't want to ever go there. I want my comforts. I'm going to stay in the game and not be cast out of the game. But he was crucified outside the walls. That's where it occurred. So if we are to follow him, take up our cross daily, walk with him, and die and, and be buried with him in his death, we have to have that happen in the place where he had it happen. And that is outside of the religions, that is outside of the carnival. It's in a very different way and we're beginning to now see the few be there that find it, that Jesus said, I will give you this if you overcome. We're stepping from worshiping God in spirit and in truth today, we are stepping into being radical sold out followers of Christ. How that looks in your life, I don't know. You could be a corporate executive in a white shirt and tie who attends church every Sabbath day and you could be the most radical follower of Christ on earth. I can't tell by appearance. But we do know that it does happen outside of the city gates. It is not part of the way this world operates. And so the more you have a foot in this world, the less you are being crucified. And all those things are lost on you if uh, that are talked about in scripture. So we don't suffer we aren't put to death. Listen, we don't we aren't crucified within the carnival or on the hills of Godland. It doesn't happen. There we find comfort and ease and are fed and led by the ways of men and women. But no man is crucified among fellowship with his own brethren. You're not going to be killed inside the city gates by your brothers and sisters. Jesus wasn't. We are all, however, crucified by our own brethren. Jesus is the one we follow. Who killed him? Who had him put to death? His own. Where did they all live and reign? In the city gates. They took him out and said, out, go out. That's who kills us here. It's those who live within the city gates and are our brothers. Because that is who killed Jesus. Those who are brothers in the faith. They took him and they killed him, and we follow him. Same principle. Outside the city gates, because we have walked from their world. We have pick, picked up a cross and exited the carnival and the Godland, and we have allowed our flesh to be crucified, where all flesh dies by crucifixion outside the city gates, where all the swelling masses enjoy life enjoy the things on that side in some form or another. You can't fool God. You're not gonna be able to show up to church. You can't come to campus or tune in and think, well, God's marking me a good guy today, or a good lady, you know, I've done it. You've got to have the heart to want to pursue him and to pursue him with all you've got. That's why he said, straight as the gate narrows away, few be there that find it. In Galatians 1.4, speaking of Jesus, it says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. That's his purpose, deliver us from. First John 5.19 says, and we know that we are of God and the whole world, everything within those city gates lies in wickedness. All of it, all the games, every kind. The world line in wickedness is presented in scripture as life within the camp. That is the the thing. At life in the carnival, death occurs outside such comforts. It's not a mistake that we read in Leviticus 24, 14 that God says, bring forth him that is cursed outside the camp and let, him lay there, let them that heard him blasphemy lay their hands upon his head and let all the congregation stone him. That's how it works. Jesus the accursed also taken outside the camp to Calvary to die and make no mistake, this is the exact same death the few be there that find it experience who dying will share the throne. I know it seems like an impossibility and with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He is looking for the humble, the meek, the lowly, the not of this world, the weak things. That is how scripture describes them. And scripture never puts anything on that other side, that left side. It never gives any kind of congratulatory, unless you're looking in the Old Testament in certain phases of that. But in the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles, it's always about the life to come. In my estimation and in summary, we have somehow come to believe that to be one of the few, we are to join the many in Godland and find solace in the arms of brothers and sisters who are like-minded and build up empires and run it all that way. In my estimation, we are to die as Christ died and that will be at the hands of those who call themselves our own brothers and sisters. And that true eternal life is found in dying daily outside of the camp and at the hands of those who should have loved us most, just as they should have received and loved Christ the most, but ended up hating him so much they killed him. And at the end of the day, maybe that's uh, why I focus our teachings as try to reach those who are in the carnival, then try to get people who have moved into Godland to say, you know, it's not really about Godland either. And to lead people to that death outside the city gates, which is a subjective, personal thing that only you and the Holy Spirit know what it looks like, because it's not a physical thing in our world. It is a spiritual thing that we are seeking for. Okay, got that off my chest. Wrapped up parts five of Revelation. I have a little bit more on the Church of Smyrna. Wendy, take a thia seat. Uh, Let's read what Jesus says now to the church at Smyrna. Second revelation to the second church. And unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death. So back to 1st eight, we're just gonna cover the first part and wrap it up. And then to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, "'These things saith the first and the last, "'which is dead and is alive.'" We've already covered in our coverage of Revelation that uh, the angel of the churches and every one of these revelations to the seven churches, I suggest is probably the pastor of that church because angel is messenger there uh, and angelos, and it means a messenger, and I don't think it's an actual angel. Here in Smyrna, Jesus speaking to one of the seven churches describes himself as the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Again, a description that he used to describe himself in chapter one of Revelation. And so we know that in every one of these revelations to the seven churches, he will uh, introduce himself in a special way. And in this time, it's, I am the first and the last which was dead and is now alive. And then he says to them, verse nine, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Let me just talk about that and we'll wrap it up. I know your works, Jesus says, and this is a uniform phrase that Jesus uses toward every single church, every one. He says, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. And because it's to a church, it's the works and direction of that church in Smyrna, in Thyatira, and how they're going. We can't use Jesus saying to the churches, I know your works, as evidence that he says to every individual, I know your works, because there's a different context there of of who he's speaking and how, all right? It's not that our works are not a topic of discussion, but it's just a different way to talk about them, and I just don't think we can use these passages in Revelation on other individuals where Jesus says, I know your works and you better do this or you better do that. He's talking to churches, all right? I know thy works and he adds and tribulation to the believers at Smyrna. He knows what they have suffered from and the persecutions and the trials inflicted upon them by their enemies. He's gonna talk about their enemies uh, next week. And then he says something really interesting. He says, and your poverty. Uh, isn't that interesting? Jesus here admits that he knows they're in poverty. In other words, folks, he allowed them to be in poverty. And what seems to be material poverty so far. It's one of the paradoxes of the faith of those who trust in God that he doesn't always provide a, a remedy to some of the things that we go through in this life. He might say to people, I know your epilepsy. I know your cancer. I know the fact that your father has mistreated you. I know your poverty. He doesn't say, I'm going to cure it, go around the corner, there's a bag of gold. He just says, I know it, okay? Some people have a great problem with this. They think that if Christ was such a wonderful humanitarian, now God, described here in Revelation that he would provide a steady flow of bread and maybe he has. And the poverty is not what we're thinking of, but we know it's a loss and a lack of material something here, probably material wealth. Has he provided them with bread? I think so, they're still alive. But he says, I know your poverty. It's not so that he doesn't care, but he understands it and we don't know the reasons why he doesn't provide to every single person, everything that they, this world requires of us, but he doesn't. And to his own believers, he acknowledges, I know your trials, I know your works, and I know your poverty. That's a remarkable statement to come from the Lamb who loves us and gave himself for us. That he recognizes what's going on in some people's lives. But he ends, that after having said that with a parenthetical reference, it's so beautiful. He says, but you are rich. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And we're talking about a focus on this life, the poverty, I understand that, but the reality of the hereafter, but you are rich. That is quite a compliment for God to give a people at, there at the Church of Smyrna. I understand what your material physical state is, but you are rich. A king, you are rich. And that's what we look for as followers of Christ, to be kings and wealthy in his spirit, and not to be focused on those things that will be left. Really beautiful, Uh, something we're gonna continue to cover next week uh, of the Church of Smyrna. Questions or commentos? David, David has a comment.
3: This is kind of backed up by the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I think the way it goes is uh, Lazarus was, in the former life, you had comfort and Lazarus had evil, which yeah. is, really means turmoil or something like that. Yeah. Now Lazarus has comfort yeah. and you are tormented. Yeah you know, completely opposite of yeah. how things switch places. Yeah, and isn't it interesting,
0: Dave, that he doesn't give any reason other than he says the rich man lives sumptuously every yeah. day. He doesn't say it was with whores or, he no, just says right. he lives sumptuously.
3: Right, yeah. And
0: it, that the it, poor man only had dogs licking. I mean, does, is that how it will actually be that those who live in non-poverty here will be impoverished there?
3: And it, it, I think poverty is a state of mind. Also, right. It's not your phys- It's not the physical stuff you've got around you. Mm-hmm. It's how you treat the stuff that you've got around you. Ah, very good. You know. Yeah. So. What, they, it, when, what it means to you? Does this mean? Does my car mean everything to me? Right. Or have I got a car so I can get around from point A to point B? Yeah. And uh, what is the? Tr- what's the truth in my heart? Mm. You know. So. Yeah. Anyway. Really good. Okay.
0: Really good. Excellent. Others? All right. Well, I wanted to stretch it out to after five, because so you, you guys aren't interested in that game that's starting at four, right? Wendy made me promise to finish on time. Let's pray. Preaching it today, Lord, and talking about that path, that, that walk outside the city gates to... Uh, put our hand to the plow and not look back and to follow your son. And with all the descriptions of crucifixion and dying with Christ daily, we know where that took place. But like Dave points out, these things are states of mind. They are conditions of the heart. And so we seek for you to help our hearts shine a bright light into the recesses of our hearts and expose those things that you don't want there, and bring them forth through whatever means so that we can address them and face them and acknowledge our failure in those areas and then take another step toward Calvary. We love you and we seek you, and we wanna be used by you in whatever way you deem fit. Uh, Help us to help those people who are trapped in the carnival of this life and those others who are trapped in the, the churches established at Godland and who believe it's all there and help us to help lead the way like you did, bearing our cross for you, for the faith that you gave your all for, because you loved this so much. We pray for our sister Heidi as she continues to battle with cancer and uh, everybody else whose names I'm not mentioning and but who are having difficulty with all sorts of troubles, Lord, that you'll be mindful of them and you'll make yourself known to them as they walk uh, stumbling in this life. We seek you and love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.